So this is what this is what it all looked like. Anyways, First uh, Peter chapter one. Uh, we're in a series right now in that we started a couple weeks ago. We're going to read just a couple passages uh, out of First Peter chapter one, uh, specifically verses five through seven, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to just jump right in to uh, the teaching here this morning. So, First Peter chapter five, chapter one, verses five through seven. Let me open this here real quick. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right. First Peter chapter one, verses five through seven says this, who by God's power, you are guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the latter days or the last time in this, you greatly rejoice though for a little while now, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials so that the genuine, the, the, the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. So let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. So Jesus, thank you for your word that nourishes and strengthens and teaches and instructs and convicts and comforts us. God, we need all of these things. Uh, God, we need your peace to transform our chaos. We need your correction to rescue us, God, from paths that we choose, that we follow down. God, we need your comfort in those areas where we just find ourselves in places of despair. So we entrust, Lord, our hearts to you right now and have your way here in this space this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't y'all grab a seat? Um, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to read a little quote from a scholar slash theologian guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He's got a great commentary on this, by the way. In fact, uh, before I even jump into that, let me just also say this, is that um, I've been trying to encourage you to read along this great book, with us um, to create space in your own day, in your own week, to process, to read, to meditate, to consider this book, um, to help you to be able to resource yourself as much as you can uh, to read this, to uh, outfit yourself with uh, tools. Uh, I've actually created a resource guide um, for you, and it's got a compilation of some of the best of the best material in there that um, I have found helpful for myself personally that I'm, I'm bequeathing unto you. <laughs> I'm giving to you guys so that you can just go ahead and check it out. Um, the best way to access that is there's a QR code. You should be able to see that right in the center there all around. If you go back to the little table back there, there should be little uh, QR codes that you can just find. Just go ahead and scan that on your phone if you need help figuring that out. Someone at the table, resource table, will help you figure that out. And again, there's these tools are an aim to try to help you to access as much information as you can so that you can grow as we uh, go through the this teaching of this book. So N.T. Wright says this, and then we'll jump in. He says, suffering is the means by which the quality of Christians, of the Christian's faith can shine out all the more. And when Jesus is finally revealed, revealed, this will result in an explosion of praise. Meanwhile, they are to our lives to inhabit to the, the gospel with love for Jesus in our hearts and a glorified joy within them. This is the beginning of the rescue which God has accomplished for them. There are difficult things here 
which must be faced, but with this new identity in Jesus and with the powerful mercy of God keeping us safe, we can keep going. Now, what N.T. Wright is addressing is really what the types of circumstances that the Christians to whom this original author was referring to or writing to. One of the things that we've noticed from the very beginning is that the aim of this book is uh, from the Apostle Peter as a means of encouraging followers of Jesus who are living in a world that was uh, very hostile to Jesus and to the gospel. And the big idea behind that was there was a temptation for people to drift away from God. Uh, from their commitment, from their loyalty to Jesus, and then drift into some form of either benign faith where it was not really robust or passionate, um, or to just kind of drift in a way where it was completely in denial of Jesus. In a lot of ways, one of the reasons why we have kind of sensed a leading from God to go through this book is because in a lot of ways, this is exactly where we see ourselves as a culture right now and as Christians right now, trying to make sense of the broader challenges and hardships and trials that we find ourselves at large in a culture trying to navigate, whether it be a pandemic or whether it be other forms of injustices that we have been a party of watching and seeing and or just the constant chronic ache of watching people drift away from their commitment and loyalty to Jesus for whatever reason. A lot of times it has to do with the fact that there is a tendency to look at other Christians and say, well, they're hypocritical or you have large scale uh, celebrity style pastors and preachers and apologists and people that have represented Christianity who have gone astray, who fall fallen away from God, who've done horribly sinful actions and activities. And that has kind of caused this sort of ache or this leeching of distrust in a very broad range of people that have followed Jesus. And it's not uncommon in our world today to find people or to have dialogue with people. Maybe this is even you, where you've kind of got to a place, even in your own Christianity, where you're like, I don't even like to call myself a Christian. Because Christians have been so misrepresented, or they have misrepresented the name of Jesus. So there's this ache, or this uh, drift away from this robust faith and loyalty to Jesus into something else. And the big question is, what is that something else? And, you know, it could be cynicism. It can be uh, apostasy. It could be uh, just a criticalness of Christianity or Jesus or the claims of Christ. Or it could just be a drift into agnosticism or even just straight up atheism. But nonetheless, a drift. And the whole point of Peter is to write to a group of Christians to say, don't drift. There's hope. There's a there's a way by which God will hold on to you and he's created a pathway so that you will remain faithful to the end. And that's what I want to look at here today because the words that Peter wrote are so rich and so good. And I keep telling myself every single week, we're just going to tackle a lot of verses. And every time I go through these passages and begin to really break them down and look at them. Number one, I'm reminded of the fact that I don't have a whole lot of time to preach to you guys on Sunday morning because if you've noticed since COVID, we have kind of scaled things down and there's a lot of reasons for that that are just practically and it makes sense, but I'm not preaching for an hour. So I have to like constantly calm myself down a lot to just realize I'm not going to be preaching for an hour. So that's number one. Number two is also realizing the contents that we're going through is so rich. I don't want to rush through it. And even though that might take our journey through this book even longer, I think it's better for all of us collectively to just kind of go at a slower pace, absorb and take in the wealth of wisdom and information that's being broken open to us than to just kind of speed our way through it just to kind of make it 
something that we get done or knocked off our list of to-dos. So with that being said, the big issue that Peter is now addressing today is, if you pay attention to the passage, he talks about trial, trials, difficulties. He likens them to fire and this burning that basically destroys and removes its viability. Or fire also has another possibility of refining something, right? Fires can destroy or fires can refine. It all has to do with the type of or the quality of material that's actually going into the fire. If it's wood, hay, stubble, something that's flammable, you know, gasoline, it'll go up and it'll be gone. If it's a precious metal, it will be refined. It will become even better, more beautiful, more valuable, more valued. And this is what Peter's saying is that there's something about the follower of Jesus those that have been preserved by God, that when they go through testings and trials and hardships, there is a potential for you and myself to come out the other end even more alive, more valuable, more committed to Jesus than even before we had gone into these things. So with that being said, I want to just jump in and take a look at a handful of different things of the verses or from the verses. We'll kind of circle back and look at them again. But I want to basically look at three things that Peter tells us in the passage that we read that he describes for us that trials are. So I'll go through them again real quick and then we'll circle back and look at each one of them bit by bit. Number one, he's going to tell us that trials cause grief. Again, take a look at verse six. He says, in this you rejoice that though for a little while now, if necessary, you have been grieved grieved by various trials. So number one, trials cause grief. Number two, trials are diverse. Again, verse six, he says, even though you've been grieved by various trials, so they're diversified or varied. Um, and then lastly, we'll take a look at the fact that we see that these trials are actually purposeful. And we get this from verse seven, uh, where he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result uh, so that word result, uh, we gain this idea of purposefulness. So there's a, there's, a, there's a potentiality for fire in the context. In other words, what he likens fire to as a trial or difficulty, a hardship, that there's a purpose for it. So with that, I want to jump right in. We'll take a look at each one of these bit by bit, and then we'll land with some uh, things to just consider as we finish up. So number one, we want to take a look at the fact that trials cause grief. So again, verse six, circle back, take a look at that. He says, in this you rejoice. So one of the things that we note very first and foremost, he says, in this, the this that he's referring to is what just came before, where he describes this inheritance. In fact, if you want, you can take a look at it real quickly. Uh, why don't you skip on back to verse five. I'll read it in case you want to just be reminded of this. He says, by God's power, you're guarded through faith for the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he goes on to say, in this, in this, you rejoice. In this salvation that God has done, that will be revealed at one point. So our rejoicing is different from happiness. Happiness is linked to happenstance. That's where the word happiness comes from, happenstance, or circumstances that create some degree of serendipitous involvement. Like you feel good about your life, feel happy, feel, and that can be subject to change, right? You can go through a moment where you're happy one instant and then the very next instant something bad happened, your car gets stolen or you get in a car crash or you lose something or you get a ticket that happened several months ago. But I'm not going to talk about that right now, but the point of the matter is everything that was enjoyable in that instant, just in an instant changes to like, ah, how did that happen? 
bumped now. I'm upset right now. I'm not happy with these circumstances. But joy, what he's saying, is linked to something that God has done. So joy, as we see kind of being unfolded here, he says, in this you rejoice. So for a little while now, if necessary, you have been grieved. So first of all, we realize that trials, they cause grief. I think this is important to note first and foremost. And here's just the first thing I want for us to consider is there's a tendency, I think, for Christians that are deeply committed to this emotion, if you would, or this state of joy to kind of create a fabricated joy. Have you ever met people like this? They're just acting like everything's happy and joy and hunky-dory. You talk to them and they're trying hard to just convince themselves that everything is great. Look, what I think Peter's trying to remind us is that our joy is not anchored in our circumstances. Our joy is anchored in what God has promised to us. So in other words, in this life, we will have tribulations. And those tribulations, as Jesus said, are not going to be happy. They're going to be crushing. They will cause grief. It's okay to acknowledge the fact that you will have grief. Things will be tough. Because I mean, we walk around all the time, constantly frustrated and in a melancholic state. But it means that we acknowledge the fact. We are not indifferent to the fact that there is pain and trauma and hardship and really bad things that happen in this world. It's okay to acknowledge that. I mentioned to you guys several times, but many years ago, probably about seven years ago now, I had a circumstance that I had some sort of surgery that needed to be done in my throat. And it was one of those moments from an existential level where I was kind of like, what will my future even look like? I don't even know because it's my throat. I speak for a living. I talk to people all the time. What does it mean if I have something go wrong with my throat and in that operation, I don't talk ever again or something bad happens and my entire livelihood, what I've come to know as my norm up until this point in my life gets taken away from me. I'm no longer able to do what I enjoy or what I feel called to do. Where will my life go? And I remember that moment just kind of like wrestling with what does it mean to be joyful? What does it mean to be honest with my circumstances? And these circumstances stink. They're horrible. They're grievous. They're bad. It's okay. Christians are not to be dishonest with their circumstances. That's different than having joy that's anchored in a future hope, but at the same time being able to have a deep level of honesty of acknowledging what I'm going through right now stinks, or this is a circumstance of injustice, and it's wicked, or evil, and I hate it, and it's not a joy-producing situation. Grievous things happen. Listen to how this word plays out in other occasions in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 17, if you want, you can write these down. Matthew 17, verses 22 to 23. It says, and they will kill him, referring to Jesus, and on the third day he will be raised. And then it says that his disciples, they were greatly distressed. That word distressed is the exact same word that's translated here for uh, grief or grievous. And they were greatly distressed or greatly grieved by what Jesus was saying. So up until this point, they've been following Jesus. They think of Jesus as being a great leader that will one day perhaps eventually even overthrow the Roman government, at least in their uh, primordial understanding of who Jesus was. Uh, and yet when they begin to realize Jesus is exactly throwing out into the agenda, hey, I'm going to suffer and be horribly tortured and go to the cross. I will die, but I'll rise again. That did not sink with their understanding as to what the Messiah would do. And so they were greatly grieved by what Jesus had to say. 
Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, this is a story that Jesus tells of a rich young ruler, we're told. This guy was really wealthy. He had a lot going for him. He was a classic American, right, who'd done really well in the stock market. He was a, you know, hedge fund investor. This guy was really wealthy, right? And Jesus says to him, he says, look, if you want to follow me, if you really want to have true wealth in this world, in the world to come, go ahead and take all of your goods, give them away to the poor, and you'll have this treasure in heaven. And says that he walked away greatly grieved at what Jesus had to say. Because he had so many possessions. Grief. And then Jesus himself. This is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 verses 36 through 38. says that Jesus then went. This is the story when Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane. It says, and he goes to this place called Gethsemane. And then he began to become sorrowful. And troubled. So what we learn about Jesus, his disciples, as well as others, is that Jesus has this tendency to himself even be grieved and to feel this deep agitation, aggravation of his soul. So if anything, what I learned from this is that all human beings, including God himself, experience grief. It's part of just being human. Even God himself subjects himself to that sense of grief. I mean, if anything, what we can do in terms of taking away from this some degree of comfort is to know that in your grief, no matter how horrible it is, you're not alone. God's with you. Even God himself has suffered in the same way. Which leads us to the very next thing is that not only are trials the cause of grief and great disturbance of soul, if you want to think of it that way, but Trials are also diverse, meaning they're not all the same. We don't all suffer the exact same ways. The various types of circumstances and hardships and trials that you have suffered are going to be different and diverse from the types that I'm going to suffer. But they all oftentimes have this tendency to produce and create grief in us. Listen to how this plays out. Again, it says, in this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, various trials. Now, later throughout the book of Peter, he's going to describe a variety of different types of quote-unquote trials that these people to whom he's writing are going to go through. So for example, chapter 2, verse 12, it says that one of the ways in which they suffer these various diverse forms of trials or fire, if you would, the fire that they find themselves going through, it will look like being slandered. It'll look like being slandered. Have you ever had someone talk smack about you, talk bad about you, or say things that are completely in opposition to you? I have. I've had people say things back this past week. I saw something come up recently. It was just like, oh, that's a complete fabrication, mistruth, unfortunate communication of misinformation about me. That's totally not true. But we, we've all gone through that. And this is what we see that the early followers of Jesus in this context, in this book, were being, uh, they were, they had false information that was going about, on about them. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, it says that these guys were actually harshly, uh, mistreated. They were treated in a way that was not in alignment with dignity and humanity and respectability. And in chapter 4, verses 4, and it goes on to say that these people were actually verbally abused. If you ever had a boss or somebody mistreat you, speak condescendingly to you, it's exactly what these guys were going through. Have you ever had somebody do that and maybe they name the name of Jesus or they call themselves a follower of Jesus? Well, how do we respond to those types of mistreatment? Well, this is exactly what these guys were going through. Again, this is how the way of trials or fire defined. Now, again, 
this is not an extensive list. You can add to this. Again, we have, you know, Christians throughout the world, throughout history, that have gone through a number of other forms of mistreatment and difficulties and trials or hardships. But the point that I want to make is this is, again, trials are diverse. They come in all forms and sizes and shapes and difficulties and colors. But the point of the matter is, is that when they come to us, there is an aim by which they oftentimes, they become the source of grief and hardship. And what they ultimately will end up do is their aim is to try to get us to walk away from our fervency and following Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in that place where in the midst of hardships, the temptation is to drift away from what you knew about Jesus or to question God's faithfulness? Again, these happen You don't need to be ashamed when that happens. You don't need to deny that that happens. It's helpful to just acknowledge the fact that there are going to be occasions and difficulties that when you face them, you have these choices to make. Will I trust Jesus? Will I press into him? Or will I walk away from him? And this is exactly what early disciples, followers of Jesus, were facing in the midst of the trials and hardships, whether it be slander, whether it be mistreatment or verbal abuse that they found themselves being faith, uh, faced with. And the last thing I want to take a look at is we see that not only are trials the cause of grief, not only are trials diverse and diversified, but we also see that trials are purposeful, meaning there's an aim. There's a teleos. There's a reason. There's, a, there's meaning that can oftentimes be found within these trials. Now, with that being said, I've got to be really honest because, again, the way that Peter describes this is he points out that there is an agenda or an aim from both God in and through trials, but also what he describes as the evil one. He describes the evil one as being like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So first of all, let's take a look at the teleos or the aim by which he describes as the evil one. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says that the evil one, he roars around, he walks around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. So his teleos, his aim, his agenda, if you want to think of it that way, in bringing you through trials or hardships or tempting you is to tempt you away from what you knew, what was your framework, your framework of understanding who God was to get you away from that, to isolate you from that, to get you into a place where you are now distrusting of God and you walk away from him. That's his aim. In fact, the way that Peter describes it is that whole process is equivalent to devouring you. Just think of that. Being devoured, being devoured by the evil one. Maybe some of you, that's where you're at today. You felt gnawed upon, devoured. What's the aim of the evil one? Is to pull you away from what you knew, what you were anchored into. To keep you in a state of chaos and question and doubt and disbelief. And in that state of isolation, to be devoured. But the flip side of this is we see that God also himself has a purpose. And this is how he describes it. Just listen to verse 7 again. He says this, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Just pause and think about this. First of all, he says gold. So what's the most valuable substance you can think of right now? I don't know why, but recently I was watching and reading an article about Bitcoin, just like some of you, and watching the stock markets. I'm like, you know what? 
I've heard people talk about investing in gold, so I downloaded an app, and I'm like looking into this, and probably I'm never going to do it, but I thought, yeah, I'll be curious to just check it out and think about it. But even that, I guess gold is kind of headed towards a low, and I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll invest in gold. I've never done it before. So I'm, if you know anything about this, maybe come talk to me. You can fill me in with your wealth of knowledge. I have no, no, I, no experience or knowledge whatsoever. But the point of the matter is, what I do know, what I do know is gold, silver, platinum, whatever, they fluctuate. They go up and down. They increase in value and they decrease in value. It's really valuable. Bitcoin may be really valuable, but even that decreases in value. But what Peter's saying is that your faith, your faith, your confidence. I like to think of the idea of faith. It's not just simply being something that you verbalize. I believe in God. The book of James says that even the devil believes. So the idea of faith from a biblical perspective is not just simply verbalization of affirmation. Like, hey, I believe in God. That's not what faith is. Faith is this deep trust and loyalty. You can maybe even use the word marriage, covenant. I covenant myself to God. That's what faith, faithfulness, devotion Loyalty to God is. He says that loyalty, faithfulness, trust, that's even more valuable than Bitcoin, than gold. They perish. But that thing that he describes as faith will never fail. And it's a gift that will keep on giving over and over and over again throughout all eternity. Listen to how he goes on to describe this. So the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this passage right here is a little bit tricky in the original language. In fact, it's kind of caused a lot of theologians and scholars and Bible teachers to question like, like who is the object? Who's the subject here? Who's the one that's being praised and glorified? Is that human beings praising and honoring God? Or is this God praising and honoring those who've been faithful? And most scholars would all agree saying, yes, it's both. It's a little bit ambiguous. On the one hand, it, it is definitely people that are loyal to Jesus saying, God, I will praise and honor and exalt you. But it's also in the same way, God himself bestowing honor and affection on those to where Jesus, for example, would say, there will come a day when those people that have been faithful to God will stand before God and God will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. What is that? C.S. Lewis would describe that transaction, that action from God is an act of praise upon the one. It's bestowing love and affection. It's like when a parent sees a child do something good, the mom and dad says, I'm so proud of you. You did so good. And that child immediately looks up with eyes wide open. It's just like, ah, oh, thank you. Or like a, your puppy dog. You praise it. It does this thing where it looks at you. And it's just like, there's a sense of pride, not evil pride, not self-elevated pride, but a sense of pride of like, oh my gosh, I in that instant am overly aware of the fact I'm loved, I'm seen, I'm known. But the, by the greatest opinion of the entire universe. And this seems to be what Peter's saying is that 
when you get to the other side, throughout all eternity, future, you'll be aware of the praise and the glory and the honor that's in Jesus. This is so important for us to consider. I want to close with some final thoughts and just consider three things, or at least two things I want to look at, and we'll finish with a final closing thought. But that when the trials that you face tempt you to give up or lose faith or lose hope, confidence, when the chaos becomes so overwhelming that you just feel like giving up, have you ever felt like that? We just felt like in that moment, just giving up, giving in, walking away from the whole thing. I, I honestly believe that in a lot of ways, in our modern world, um, unlike first century Christians, I think probably like them, their tendency was to kind of go a little bit soft. Like, hey, if being a follower of Jesus means I'm going to be mistreated or abused or slandered, I might not be as robust in my confidence in my faith or outwardly a, uh, presenting a picture of faithfulness to God. So I might go a little bit like, you know, undercover, MIA, being soft, being silent when it comes to my testimony of Jesus. I think in a lot of ways, modern Christians, especially here in California on the Central Coast, what I've noticed over the past many, many years, maybe 15 to 20 years, there has been this shift that's become more and more progressive, I think, in our culture. That rather than just simply walking away and saying, you know, I'm just going to go soft in my faithfulness to Jesus. There's sort of this tendency to be like, ah, Christians, they're so messed up. They're so bad. The way that television promotes Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm going to walk away. I'm not even going to be associated as a Christian. It's not uncommon is what I'm trying to say. It's very familiar, very common storyline to hear Christians or people that were once faithful to God now in, you know, post-Christian interviews to be like, you know what? I don't call myself a Christian anymore. I believe in God, I think, or a version of God, but I will never call myself a Christian again. I think that's common today. And I think if I were to go around and kind of ask the question, like how many of you have had conversations with, you know, a family member or a friend or a roommate or someone that you've known that has been once moved from a place of like radical, on fire, in love with Jesus, very, you know, excited about who God is. Now they've kind of migrated into this like post-Christian narrative of, I don't call myself Christian anymore. I'm actually embarrassed of anything that's named Christian. I think it's a common way of thinking about it today in our world. And what I want to suggest to you that there's a parallel between what Peter's audience were dealing with and many Christians in today's world is it's a way of disassociating. It's a way of drifting. It's a way of moving away. But here's the bigger question is like, where do you move from that to what? To your own idea of who God is? Who's going to feed that idea now? Where does that narrative come from? Are you the creator of that one? And if you are the creator of that one, are you not the one that's creating God in your image? And a God that you craft and create in your own image, ultimately, will he be able to rescue you on that final day? Or will it be a God that at some point will fail you in the end? And I think what Peter is trying to say to us is that when you face trials, 
And those trials might come in very benign forms. They might come in the form of the ways in which the early first century Christians that we just read were going through. Or they might come through various trials that you've gone through where you've been diagnosed with something. Or someone you've known has gone through something horrible. Or even Christians that you have trusted. They, they have had an impact upon your life. But at some point along the line, they failed you. They acted in ways that were just very unbecoming of who Jesus was. Or maybe celebrity Christians that have been well-known or broadcasted or had some sort of very broad platform. And in their act of walking away from God or misrepresenting God, it's rattled your faith. Look, let's be honest, man. I think the past five to ten years, we've seen even more of that. Even with the advent of the internet, we've seen more of that. Ravi Zacharias recently, the situation surrounding his life, is just, it's, a, it's, a, it's appalling. It's wicked. There's nothing wrong with just acknowledging. It is utterly grievous, the sins that have been committed. And it's okay to acknowledge that, because it is. It's wicked. But what do we do with that now? Where do we allow the evil to take us? Do we drift from Jesus? Do we drift from his family? And in doing so, craft our own version of God? And then what? Where does that leave us? I think Peter's words is to say, remain faithful to Jesus through the trials. Two things I want to finish with and wrap it up, and then we'll go to communion, is number one, I think it's important for us to look backward and then to look forward. Number one, look backward. Listen to what Peter says. He wants us, I think, very clearly to acknowledge that God is working for you. Take a look at first, or Second Timothy chapter 1, verses, verse 9. He says this, that he, God, saved us and called us, not by our own works, but according to his own purposes, in Jesus. And then he says, before time began. So you can ask the question, when did you become a Christian? If you were a follower of Jesus, when did you become a Christian? The proper answer, I mean, you could say, back, I became a Christian nine months ago. Or maybe you just became a Christian three weeks ago. Um, That's fine. But the reality is you were invited to be part of God's family from eternity past. Long before you were even born, God spoke and called you. And you belong to him. God's been working for you. That's the big idea. That God was even at work in your life even before you even gave any attribution to his working in your life. This is the degree to which the biblical picture of God comes into view, that this God is for you. So number one, we see that God is working for you. Number two, we see that God's people are also working for you. You might be asking the question, how is that even possible? Listen to what Peter's going to go on to say. We'll read more about this next week, but just we'll get a little bit of a highlight into the future. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Listen, he says, concerning the salvation that he's, gonna, that he's writing about right now, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They were serving not themselves, but you. Did you catch up? The prophets. Who were they serving? Not themselves. You. And you might be saying, how? How did the prophets, how did Moses serve me? How did Ezekiel, Daniel, how did the ancient prophets serve me? Listen to how they served you. So for example, you have someone like Ezekiel, who in his prophetic message was speaking for us to God's people saying, stop 
turning to these idols, these false images, these false gods, they cannot sustain the weight of your life or your sin or your brokenness. Turn to God. It was written down, and, and we have it. So every single time you read those passages and are reminded of the story that you are invited to, this was Ezekiel serving you or Daniel when he would say turn to God those who follow after righteousness will shine like the stars this is Daniel serving you or Moses the ten commandments and distributing the words of God to this is Moses serving us we see these images even throughout the New Testament Peter writing what Peter wrote this is Peter serving us in what means what way saying keep going on don't lose faith. Don't walk away. Hold on. We also see people beyond just the biblical perspective throughout history. I think of a guy by the name of like William Tyndale, if you're familiar with him. He was a man that was influenced by a guy by the name of Martin Luther, who uh, was a German reformer. And William Tyndale basically took the Bible that was written up until that point in Latin and says, you know what? Human beings who speak English need to have the Bible so they can read it themselves. Up until that point, you couldn't just go to the store and go get a Bible. They, they did not exist. So William Tyndale defied the religious institutions of the day, which is the Roman Catholic Church, and says, I'm going to translate the Bible from the Latin language into the common English language. So every peasant, every broken human being living on the streets of London can read the Bible. Well, William Tyndale, when against the institution, was ultimately killed burned at the stake just after being strangled to death. That was William Tyndale serving you so you can have the scripture. I think of a guy by the name of Henry McNeil Turner. You have no idea who he was because I had no idea who he was. Uh, recently, if you uh, subscribe to PBS, I would highly, highly, highly recommend uh, there is a three-part series uh, I think the first two parts have come out. The third part is still coming out this week on the history of the black church in America. I cannot recommend it more highly. You must. My encouragement to you would be is watch it. It is so good. Uh, this particular guy by the name Henry McNeil Turner, he was a slave or a descendant of slaves. And right after the Civil War, what he did is he recognized more than anything the black community. What they need is not... Anything beyond Jesus. He went around the entire South, Virginia, Carolinas, Georgia, planting churches for black communities. Everywhere he went, he was a missionary proclaiming Jesus. And this is exactly what he did. He went around planting these churches. And when I think about this, here was a guy, Henry McNeil Turner. If you were to ask what type, what quality of Christianity had he been given, I can tell you. It was slave owner Christianity. The message of Jesus that he heard was through the filters of slave owners. In other words, it was a very tainted, broken, distorted gospel that he may have not only heard, but he definitely witnessed. It was very common for people who owned slaves to use the scripture as a way of, of justifying their holding of slaves. And here's a guy, William McNeil Turner, who rather than turn away from God and say, I'm done with Christianity, it's a bunch of hypocrites out there anyhow, and I'm done, I'm going to craft my own Christianity, or I'm not going to call myself Christian. 
On the very opposite, he said, I'm going to go plant churches because more than anything, what people need is the truth of scripture come to life. So rather than run from Jesus, rather than deny Jesus or to deny Christianity or to say he's no longer a Christian, he's spiritual, but not a Christian. He actually went back to the source of scripture itself and says, I'm going to get back to what scripture teaches from this very origin and replicate that throughout the South for blacks, because that is the only thing that will ever bring forth dignity and value and honor into human beings. The thing that we see that's so important is the past, as we look to it, it serves you. God, through the prophets, through the writings. I even think of family members that have served you. Think of a mom or dad or grandma or someone that has been invested in your life at some point that faithfully preached Jesus to you. Maybe they're no longer here with you today, to this day. But even the very, me- the very memory of them serves you. What's that memory saying to you? My guess would be it's saying, keep holding on to Jesus. Don't let him go. Where else will you turn if you turn away from him? So not only do we have to look backward, but we also look forward to this future that God has in store. Listen to how 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says this, and I'm done. He says, to the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is Peter's way of urging the people that are facing grievous, diverse, purposeful trials to say, hold on. Look forward. The future that God has for you is bigger, brighter, greater than anything you can ever even imagine or compare to what you're suffering right now in this moment of your life. And I wonder, listen again how he describes it. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. What is it that you have right now in this life that is bringing you a source of hope and joy and happiness? Whatever that is, I don't care what it is. It could be like a brand new app that you just downloaded or a new boyfriend or a girlfriend or a car or a job. At some point, I promise you, that thing will become faded or defiled. Or lose its value. Even though right now it's a source of tremendous happiness. At some point it will begin to tarnish. And how he describes our future with God is it's unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. And I wonder if one day thousands and thousands and thousands of years into eternity, we will one day look back and in a collective memory, at least those that were alive during this season right now will be like, do you, re- do you remember 2020? Do you remember the pandemic? Remember we had to wear those stupid masks? Do you remember the summer and all the anxiety and the racial injustice Do you remember being judged and accused for not posting something or posting something you shouldn't have posted? Do you you remember the trauma and the pain and the hurt? Do you remember the loneliness, the ache of feeling alienated? Do you remember the first time you hugged someone after three months of not seeing anybody? Do you remember 
that grief. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, don't let go of Jesus. Where else will you turn? What other options are there that are unfading, unending? Where else will you go? Who will be the author of whatever that other else thing is? Does it have eternity inscribed into it? This is what Peter's urging the believers. Don't let go. Don't turn from. Don't allow these trials and the heat and the pain and the hardship and the suffering and the struggle to lead you away from Jesus. And lastly, as we finish, I was reading, I came across this song. Uh, it was an ancient African-American spiritual it blew my mind to just realize these songs that African-Americans actually began to compose during slavery when one white human being, for the most part, owned another human being and mistreated them. In the midst of that oppression, many, many within the black community didn't run from God. They turned to God. I want you to pause and think about that. Compare that to our world again today. Where many in our Christian communities today, they had a high school pastor that went sideways. They've watched someone that basically completely disoriented away from any relationship with God, distorted the gospel. And in the midst of that, they look at that and say, I'm no longer a Christian. I can't identify with that. That's the very opposite of what African-Americans did in America. They said, my, 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 my owner... Slave owner is a horrible misrepresentative of Jesus, but I'm going to turn to the true Jesus. I'm going to create songs to worship him because I know that the fabrication that's being given to me by my slave owner, this distortion does not align with the true heart of who God is. And they would craft songs to sing to God. When they had moments of spare time, they would go to these little prayer houses And they would gather and they would pray and they'd seek God. They'd sing songs, not very loud because they didn't want to get in trouble. But here's one song that was written uh, around the time of 1700s. Um, It was believed to have been written uh, by a bunch of slaves that had gone to the preaching of a guy by the name of Samuel Davis. There were all sorts of uh, awakenings that were happening. And this particular preacher preached and a handful of black slaves heard this and then began to write this song. This is the song that they wrote. After listening to a white preacher that was part of the whole colonial system, he says this, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be more loving in my heart. Lord, I want to be more holy in my heart. And they finish with this phrase, Lord, I want to be more like Jesus in my heart. These were people who were horribly suffering trials. And in the midst of those trials, rather than becoming embittered and walking away from Jesus, they press into the truth of Jesus even more. It says, I want to be like Jesus. This is Peter's exhortation to you and I today. Let's listen to what he has to say. Let's examine our hearts. And let's go to God right now as we wrap up this morning. We'll partake of communion together. We'll sing a closing song. How about we all stand And it's in this moment, just reflect upon the nature 
of this God that loves us and gave himself for us. Uh, ushers will go around. They'll hand out some the little cup. Go ahead and grab one if you would like to participate with us. If you don't want to participate, it's totally fine too. Just let it pass. If you're at home joining us, there's an opportunity for you now to go ahead and grab a cup, something, fill it up in a cracker or whatever it is, and then we'll partake together. Uh, Jesus, right now, we turn our hearts to you. We examine, God, ourselves, any areas where we've just grown hard or cynical or angry or embittered because of our circumstances. We want to bring that collectively and individually and lay that at your feet, Jesus. The one who has been grieved himself through suffering, sin, that was laid upon him and death, the cross, and came out the other end. So let's lift up our voices to him and we'll partake together. The communion at the end.